Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's, thir- it's Wednesday night. And this is a strange day. Uh, I wanted to do another book that I'm looking at in the Gnosim uh, catalog. They're having their um, uh, auction in a few weeks on December 11th, Sunday, December 11th. And something caught my eye. This is a strange story, and I got interrupted tonight. I'm doing it again. It's been a very strange evening, and I'm really under the weather with this cold and this other stuff. I got really scared. I thought I might have the COVID, but I took the test, and I do not, Par Hashem. So all I have to worry about is just all this, uh, you know, congestion and all stuff, plus my my knee. So in spite of everything, I'm endeavoring to do this simply because I'm doing this as a quirk. It caught my attention, and and I'm very happy to help out uh, the uh, the fancies with the uh, with the Gnosim catalog with the auction. At a, I, when I looked through it, uh, when he sent it to me last week, so. He said, see if there's anybody you know there, and you know you can talk about him and so on and so forth, which I'm happy to do. And I fixated on the Panea show, which I did today, which they're selling, you know, uh, in, in in the auction. I'm talking about the original Panea show. That's one I just did today. But out of the side of my corner of my eye, I saw they have a Helcha Shechita Obedika from the Mari Wild, Yaka Wild, who I did the Mari Ball once a number of years ago. I don't remember how long ago, a Yaka Wild. And I don't know, it just, I got, I got hooked on it. And I said, that's interesting. And then, listen to this. When I said I would do the Pnei Yeshua, so I looked around for my Magina Shlomo. I think I had the old one. And I, well, I, long ago, I mean, many, many years ago, I used to use it in Yeshiva sometimes. And, I mean, long ago. And I can't find it. Probably I, I lent it out to somebody, and that's the end of it. There's a lot of books I lend out, and that's the end of it. So... Um, so I called Chopsies two days ago, and I said, you got a Magini Shlomo, especially I heard they have a new one, and he said, they can get it, you know, by last night or something, don't make a long story short, I went today, before I get the podcast, to this farm store, to Chopsies, now Yitzis, and they, you know, they got me the new one from the, the which was just the reprinted, uh, which I liked, they didn't have a lot of information, but, but I, 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 uh, I, that's the edition they have. That's the McGinney Shlomo that I spoke about before. And at the corner of my eye in, the, in this forum thing, I saw they have this new edition, which I saw a week or two ago, but I paid no attention to it. Uh, a deluxe, baby, deluxe, deluxe edition of the Marie Wiles Hilchus Shita And when I say deluxe, it's like an obsession, or maybe I should use the word, it's a magnificent uh, passion, whoever this guy was. And they put out the edition of all times. It's like crazy. And it's really a work of historical scholarship, even though it's some from operation in Yerushalayim. And I'll tell you why. And I said, you know, son of a gun, God is talking to me. So I said to myself, when I have a chance, I'll do this uh, a book also, because it's also being auctioned, the uh, early edition in the 1500s, 1570, uh, he has 1556. I actually thought it was 1560, but it doesn't matter. In um, in Mantua, the laws of Shechita, so on page Yotes. Um, in the uh, Gnazim uh, catalog. Again, that's G-E-N-A-Z-Y-M, not I-M. It's Y-M. And this is all online. You just Google that, Gnazim. You can see it. I'm old-fashioned, so I have to see a physical catalog. And it was published in uh, Mantua, which I'll explain the significance of that if I can. And it's written on parchment, like a deer skin or something like that, which is interesting. So it was, it was printed on, on, on parchment. And that's Mamish Renaissance style. And they even have a little picture they show you in the catalog of how they show the Nicks in the Pagimas in the, in the Chalaf and so forth. Although it says at the bottom, in illustrations of knives in Val for Shechita use. So in other words, they shows you the, the Pagimas and things like that. Um, all right, so what you might say like this. So come on, cats. A book on Helcha Shechita? You know, that's boring. I get that, but it's not. And like I said before, to be perfectly honest, until I had this, like, stir... I also would say that's ah, boring, but but really it's not, and 
Um, I'll tell you right now, this book, Hilcha which I'll talk about in a second, is one of the most republished books in Jewish history. Uh, I have Dinari's book, this, his, um, what do you call it, Professor Dinari's book on the uh, Ashkenaz Dome of the 15th century. What's it called? Chachmei Ashkenaz B'Shuli Me'abinayim. I like it. So he did a good, it's his dissertation. And basically, he deals with the Ashkenazi Jews in the 1400s. This, my friends, is before they came to Poland. In the 1400s, the Jews in Poland were dumbies. They were big Amaratsim. There was a wave of immigration from Germany in the late 1400s, early 1500s, running away from persecution. They ran away from the different German states where the persecution was intensifying, and they moved one country over to the Polish Empire that we've spoken about so often. And that's what inaugurated the Golden Age of the Jews in Poland, because they had these big Ashkenazi Jews, including big rabbis, the biggest. And in Poland, they found, uh, you know, without going into details, again, I've spoken about it before, they found like a from paradise. And um, they set up a gansa business with yeshivas and learning and the scholarship and so forth and so on. And from then on, that became the Ikramakam Ashkenaz until Hitler. And that became the Ikramakam Yiddishkeit in the world until Hitler. Eastern Europe, I think we all know. Even today, we live in America and elsewhere, are what he called, are profoundly influenced by the norms of Eastern Europe. Uh, if you don't know that, you don't know anything. Now, um, but that wasn't the case in the 1400s. The Ikramakum Torah was in the south and, and, and western Germany. Uh, again, it was called the Holy Roman Empire, so it's those territories to the south, like in Bavaria and such places. It was a lot of anti-Semitism. And even more south, like in Austria, that was the Truman Sadesh and Marburg. And um, and what, and basically there were three big gedolim, and they had to hold the fort in very difficult times. This is the 1400s. And the three biggies it, not in any particular order, is the Maril and Mari Weil, Yaakov Weil, and the Trimus Adeshim, Israel And these are the three big guys that were gigantic gadolim, and they were smart cookies. They knew how to poskin and how to guide the communities that would listen to them, I repeat, that would listen to them in the right path, even though there were a lot of Gezeris. I mean, in the 1300s, 1400s, there were huge massacres. Remember, the, after the bubonic plague, even in the time of Yakawal, uh, they had what he called, uh, you know, the, the, they killed, they burned all the Jews in the streets in Vienna, you know, 1421. Uh, you probably don't know. Just take my word for it that if you look at a map with all the pogroms happening, not at the same time, but at different places across what you and I call Germany, it would look like a, a fever is going on. It's a fire here, and then it goes out in a fire there, and it goes out in a fire there, it goes out. And each one represents violence against the Jews. And as a result, Two things happen. First of all, a lot of Jews are killed. And second of all, even the ones that weren't killed, the system of Yiddishkeit was busted. The yeshivas and that sort of thing fell down for the most part. The level of knowledge of the surviving Jews who didn't convert was very low. And therefore you had, I would say, a certain halachic catastrophe in the sense that the is no good and the mikvah is no good. And this, I mean, they all have shrita, but the shrita is no good. They all had mikvah, the mikvah is puzzle. They all had this and that and the other, but it's no good. You understand? Notice it didn't, didn't, didn't meet up with the norms. This is the world in which our hero of Yaakov Wow, and if you want to find out about his biography, you'll listen to the podcast I did him some time ago. I remember Rabbi Stephen Wow sponsored it because his name is Wow. Now, Rabbi Yaakov is a great man, and mostly he's known, uh, well, I have to modify, but I said in the last podcast, mostly he's known um, by people such as myself and uh, others. For the Shalos and Shubas Mariwal, which are using the Shulchan Aruch and the Ramah, and the, you know, the, he's, he's one of the biggies. One of the, he's in the pantheon. But the world of Shalos and Shubas is a world not for the Hamonam. It's a world for the elite. So someone who's uh, educated in rabbinic literature can possibly read Shalos and Shubas. Not everybody can, but you know, if you know enough, you can plug away it and figure it out. If you have the gumption, um, and therefore the Shubas and Mariwal is like the Nod Yehuda. I'm sorry, it's one of the biggies. It's one of the classics. Ariaka was a very important rabbi, you know, in the German states. And he's famous for trying to wrestle with the problems of Yiddishkeit in a very responsible way. And I'll tell you right now, the, the Jews in his time suffered not only from external persecution, but from terrible malchinus. It's unbelievable. Everybody was telling it everybody, and no community was safe, and it was just terrible. And I'll bet you money that guys like him and other gedolim, probably attributed, this is my opinion, it's only my opinion, and probably attributed 
these terrible misfortunes that are striking the Jewish people and the terrible behavior exhibited by the Jewish people, whose grandparents had not been like that, to the fact that they're eating treif. And then when you treif, it's matan to mesalev. Do you understand? Now, I know that's a mystical type word, but it's a very Jewish type word. And truth of the matter is, we believe this. So when you, um, you know, don't eat food that's kosher, has an effect on you. I, I think you know that. Um, not everybody's like the Kloisenberg Rebbe who would only eat potatoes as I'm in the concentration camp because he said he wouldn't attempt to malave in the concentration camp where he has to always make a, a snap session, second decision. He has to be the right decision. He didn't want to be attempt to malave. But, you know, other people uh, certainly ate trafe in the Holocaust. I don't I mean, My father sure did if he if he had a chance to. In Dachau in these places, you're starving to death. If you ask me the theological question, if somebody's starving to death and eats something where you're allowed to do it, but never, is that Matantam Salev? I don't know. Yeah, probably this one says this and that one says that. But we're talking a couple hundred years ago, and the main problem, and this is a problem throughout Jewish history, is Shrita. Um There are books, I have a next to me a big fat book from 1940 from Jeremiah something or other, a concerned rabbi. We did a very, Berman, Jeremiah Berman, where we did a very interesting uh, history of Shrita and the problems that arose with all the rest of it. He wasn't even from, but he's got a lot of the sources that he collected over there. And um, in Germany, especially in the 1400s, it was terrible. Listen to what I'm about to tell you. Most of the German Jews lived in very small communities. You out there who are listening to this podcast, if you're Yakis, you can ask your, if, if anyone's alive, you can ask your grandparents about their grandparents. And you'll see Usually they didn't come from a big city or something like that. And if they did, where did they where were they before that? They all were in little doors and places like this is how life was lived in Germany for many centuries. So every town had a few Jewish families here, there, and the other. Well, if you have a, a dozen Jewish families or less, how does the Shrita work? Get it? It's no joke. How do you work with the Shrita? And the answer is either a a, a, a circulating Shrita, you know, a circuit shokit goes from town to town, something like that, or the local guy learns how to do it, well, how well does he learn how to do it? You, you see what I'm saying? Now, in Germany, by the Yekas, by the Ashkenazim, in the 1400s, there's a big read over here. People didn't know, and um, they thought, uh, let me put it this way, there's the Das Talmud Chacham and the Das Hamunam. The Das Hamunam is, look, what's all this extra shtick with the Shechita? You cut the neck, you know, we don't kill it like the Goyim do, you slice the neck, the the, 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 the the knife should be sharp. Don't give me all this mishigas about the begimas and the little thing and this and the other. The knife should be sharp. And, you know, and, and if it doesn't look diseased, it's, only, it's okay, you know. Meaning they didn't really know the dinim. Uh, they heard this, they heard that. The level of ignorance was unbelievable. Which is why phonies preyed upon the German Jews in the 1400s in, in, in particularly, phonies who claim to be rabbis, phonies who claim to be shochtim, phonies who claim to be chazanim, and so forth. And Marie Weil is one of the famous people who is credited with instituting the licensing system we call the, the modern smicha, the Ashkenazic smicha, which is that, you know, at least this guy has some knowledge. So today, somebody wants to be a rabbi in a show, he signs up, they say, where's your smicha? I, you know, and I know, you do not really need a smicha to be a Talmud Chacham. Some of the greatest Talmud Chacham in Jewish history didn't have smicha. That is true. But nevertheless, especially from a Baal point of view, I want to know, do you have a, an, an education? You get it? Like, what, what yeshiva did you go to? Where did you graduate? And so I, I want to know your background. And if you have a smicha, let's say from near Israel, to Radas, this place, whatever, to Hawaii, it doesn't matter. Then you say, okay, then you went through some kind of licensing board. This is the Baal mentality. And Marie Wild kind of started this. And he also started with these Kabbalists and Shrita and things like this. And he realized that um, the ignorance was unbelievable. So what's the result? Everybody's actually eating treif, even though they think they're eating kosher. Because the local shoker is no damn good. Maybe he means well. Maybe he doesn't mean Maybe he's a, maybe he's a scoundrel. You know, it, 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 all those happened. But at the end of the day, the local people are eating meat. is not geshachtin properly. And that comes out to eating, like, you know, a uh, tray for food. And non-kosher food, let's put it that way. And that's a matantum and And that explains why they have such bad behavior. Why children of great people now become mishamadim, why they become malshinim, and things of this nature. So, 
Um, there were a couple of people before him, a very small number, who tried to write popular works of Shlita, at least give a basic guidance to the local guys, it's very far from the modern type of test that you take today. Um, but, you know, there were these kinds of uh, uh, books out there. Um, I remember the uh, Ravon has a poem. You can learn Hilchah through a poem. And, you know, people, things like that. The, the, the Martin Rottenberg, the, whatever. But these things did not take off. So this is why I'm interested in what they have in the Gnosim catalog. <laughs> Because here we deal with the question, which is interesting to me. That's what I argue. And that is, how come some swarm take off and some don't? How come some swarm, which could be good ones? Let me put it this way. I think the Maram Rottenberg knew how to learn. I think if he wrote a Hilke Shkit, he knew what he's talking about. That's what it seems to me. Nevertheless, you probably never even heard that he wrote such a thing. And it never took off. It never got any kind of, you know, play, any tfutsa. So what is it that makes a book get republished and republished and popular and all the rest of it? All I can tell you is that this that to to solve the situation, Rabbi Yaakov wrote a book on Hilchah Shkita Bedika. He said you got into the Bedika also, um, you know, to be Bodik. and um, he wrote it in, in in his way, which he's a very clear writer, very pithy. He wrote some agos around it, and this book took off like hotcakes, and which is what he wanted. Now he lived before the printing press, so. He wanted people to make copies of it. And in Echanami, you know, people make mistakes in copying and all the rest of it. And Shkita, that's no joke, but there's no choice. And so this book already was spreading like wildfire in the late 1400s, which shows you that it, it was the right book for the right time. How come the art scroll took off and, you know, uh, I don't know, the other company didn't take off? You know, you get it? These are historical questions. When one takes off and the other doesn't, a historian wants to know why. So if you want to know what happened with Marie Wall, let me tell you something. You'll be shocked. Dinari, who did his dissertation on it, says he knows the book was republished 70 times. That's a lot, baby. 70 times. But Stefanski, who has all the bibliographic stuff, he said it was published 150 times. How many forms do you know in the history of Kalei that was republished in different places 150 times? I'm, I, you probably don't understand the significance of that. So what we're seeing over here in the catalog is one of the early editions in Italy. Why in Italy? I'll explain in a minute if I can. But um, it's one of the many, many early editions. And uh, the, as we would say today, this is a book that became beloved by Claudius Yisrael. It's a very interesting, you know, something about it that it took off, it rocketed. And, you know, the Mechaber was long dead. And it went on and on throughout the 1500s and the 1600s, 1700s, even into the 1800s. Um, and everybody and his brother... Um, not only bought the book, they translated the Yiddish. By the way, I wish Gnosim would sell. Well, it wouldn't matter to me. I don't got that kind of money. They, If they would sell the Helga uh, Shkita of Mariwal from Lublin in, I think, 1614, it has the kudos. <laughs> but, what, <coughs> but what does that tell you? In the 1600s, it's so popular... So popular that they want to even, uh, you know, address the, the, the crowd of people like Nikudos when the Helcheshkita book. You get it? When you see these, the kudos in, in the old days, it means you're dealing with a book of tremendous popularity that even the public ordinarily wouldn't read a, a safer. They wouldn't read the safer. Now, was everybody a shokhet? No, but a lot more were then than they are now. And second of all, all these towns had these little things, these guys who were shokhet and whatever. And he obviously hit a home run in that he explained things very clearly. I would say it's very succinct. You know, he leaves out what you don't need to know, which is a tremendous Milo when, in writing books, okay? Um, he has his chumras there and all the rest of it. He is the book used by the Ramah, okay? He quotes all the time. He is the book, and Ramah says, we go by Mariwa. Now, that doesn't mean everything in the Ramah goes like the Mariwa, but that's the basis of it. Um, and, he paid, and, you know, he, let's put it this way. In the time of the Gonim, you had to know all the trefos. Whoa, that's for your um, your Dafyomi uh, Magad shears, you know, when he goes to Chul and all the trefas, you know, Pesukas <laughs> Agageres and all that stuff. And he said, no, all you need to know is the trefas Areya, you know, for the lungs. And other things, ask your local rabbi, which is the smart way to go. So all I'm trying to say is he had a natural talent, the Mechaber of Yaakowal, who was a Godel Ador, who had a yeshiva. He didn't need to posh with these little things, but he was a great man. And he said, the great man has to stoop to answer to do a chesed, I guess you'd call it with a claw, Yisrael, to make these 
halachas uh, clear and understandable to the degree he's able to spread his knowledge so that all around the place there'll be upgrade, uptick in the level of the shechita and the level of kashras, and things will get better. And then in, to a guy like him, the persecutions will stop, you know. Um, and so let's put it this way. He he put this book out. I'll tell you right now, right away, here's the interesting part. Right away, uh, people started making uh, Yiddish translations, and right away, little rabbis here, there, and there, sometimes big ones, started writing Pirushim on his book. So in other words, the little book would come out with old Pirush from the uh, Marshal, for example. It's one of the early ones. Okay. The Marshal, it's a biggie, you know. A lot of them, or Ramah, a lot of them were people you never heard of because, you know, it's a dying here, a sheikh there, or something like that. In this, see, I don't know who they are. I mean, I, you know, I, like I said, I can see their names on a footnote or something like that. That's mainly who collected this information, which is Professor Denari, although he clearly only did half the work, I see. Um, let me put it this way. Now there came out his new edition, and I don't get any money for, for, for plugging this book, but it's really amazing. And it's called Shechitas Abedikas, Lamed Zayin Perushim. So this guy took the trouble, whoever put it out in, in Israel, and it says it's something called, it just came out, it's something called Machon Tavu Ashor. I think you can you can understand that. We're sure we'll see later on. Did the uh, did the book to compete with him? It's Machon to Wilshore Lahoros Lahoro Veshub Venikor, right? Shochet Behem is known as Venikor. So uh, okay, uh, they want to make this, and it's in beautiful print. Somebody poured a lot of money into this project. I mean, a lot of money, and what they did was. They collected all these guys that you never heard of who wrote Purushim on the Elder Shita. I'm looking at one page. It looks like a like a Shulchan Aruch almost with all these uh, hundred Mefarshim on the page. The Zivchei Tzedek, the Tikkun Azevach, the Zivchei Riv, Zivchei Tovia, the Maimar Kadishin, the Olis Yitzchak, the Beis Lechem. Whoever heard of these people, you know what I'm saying? And they're you know being medayik and little things how goes on um, on the main text of the Mariwal. Most people didn't read those. They just read the Mariwal with his own stuff. Which is short and to the point, and that's what Ashok had learned. That's what he did. In other words, you didn't have to go through all shots. It's not going to happen. Um, you learned the Hilchah Shrita and you chazered it. They said you have to chazer every month and things like that. And that's how Shochim operated for hundreds of years. And if it got republished 150 times, it means there was always in demand. And I, there were other Shrita books that came out. Yeah, but they couldn't compete. This is what I mean. That's what's so fascinating to me as a historian that. Vox populi, vox dei. The voice of the people is the voice of God. The Oilam said like this, these others for him don't turn us on. And Marie Wilde, they probably never knew who he was. Uh, this turns us on. This, I can understand. It's it's clear, it's legible, it's understandable. Uh, you know, if I sit down and make up my mind to go through it, I can learn up the halachas, I can ask a rabbi here and there. And um, the other books you've never heard of, for the most part, until the 1600s, late 1600s. Uh, and... Uh, even in the 19th century. So, you, like I say, you have, now the, the the outfit that put this deluxe edition out, put it out with 100 pages, to, no, 200 and some pages of history. <coughs> you see my cold. With two over 250 pages of what I just talked about. Going through each and every, it's a, this is a deluxe edition. Like I say, whoever went to this had a magnificent obsession. And they went through every edition, not only of the Sefer, but of all the Mepharshim, that I tell you again, no one's ever heard of this stuff, right? I mean, some you have, uh, you know, David Oppenheimer, we've heard of him, but uh, a lot of you never heard of it because this guy was a dying in this place, and he was a shakhet in, in that place. Hagos Gvul Ben you know, who's who's that? And, you know, here it is. Asher Asav Akibetz, Harav Ben Yaman Wolf Ben Akadish Rameir, Zatzal Vintritz, Shochet Abodi Poki Hill Kodesh Prague. So a reputable Shochet in Prague published an edition with his notes to it and all the rest of it. Um, so it's 250 pages of luxuriant, you know, um, attention to this classic book. It's a large, almost like a coffee table book. But then the second half is Mamsh, the, the heavy stuff. It's got the the Shritas and Badikas are Mariwal. It's got all these different Mepharshim on it. 
So I said to myself, it can't be just a coincidence that I see this in the Gnosim catalog, and then it's over here. And I'll say it again, I'm calling attention, at least my, I, I'm trying to call attention to the fact that there are some form that take off and some form that do not. And there's no question that um, this is a book, like I said before, that became beloved among the Ashkenaz Jews, and may I say, it spread among the Spartan and generated, the historians will tell you, a competition literature among the Spartan in the 1500s, because they said, oh, this is a very good book, but it's by Ashkenaz, so we should do one for our own. And it started already five or ten guys publishing these little books. None of them, as far as that, I'm not Sephardi, so I could be wrong, but I don't think any of them spread among the whole Sephardi world the same way that these do. Now, the Shechit is no joke. The Shechit has in his hands the, the, the souls and the conscience of the whole community, correct? If he don't do the job right, he's causing a lot of trouble. Um, and yet, the history of Kali Sorrel is full of lousy shoktim. And you were seeing the Shalas and Shuvas literature and elsewhere, they curse, they swear, they drink, they uh, you know run around, they carry on with others, they do all the things that you wouldn't expect. Now, it's also true that there were many shoktim we were from. No question about that. But there's also the other kind. Okay? There's also the other kind. And what do you do there? I remember, if you read the, um, what do you call it, the Shilohi uh, Abesh, you know, about the Baal Shem Tov, a lot of times he does a Sherlock Holmes part where he comes to a town and something's going wrong and he makes a, a, a Baal Shem Tov investigation using his superpowers and by the time it's all over, who is the culprit to Shaykhit? You know, at the end we'll say, yes, I was Madonna, I did this, I gave Trafe and all the rest of it. But, you know, without Sherlock Holmes being there, without the Baal Shem Tov using his power, no one would ever discover. So, I don't know, you know, nobody knows if all those stories in um, in the Shem Chabesh are exactly true, but it reflects a reality of the times, and that's supposed to be a time when everybody was quote-unquote from. But I'll tell you again, quote-unquote from means everybody keeps kosher. It doesn't say a word about the quality of the kashras. It doesn't say a word about that, okay? And I'll tell you again, it was very common in small communities for a member of the family to learn, you know, Shechito, and he does the Shechting, and I'm talking about even Gassas. Now, um, the Mirwal has, he's one of the guys that has a lot of these Chumras in there. Um, the Ashkenaz have a lot of Chumras that Spartan didn't have. Uh, it's very interesting to uh, what the reasons are. I'll tell you right now, I'll give you a historical shot that comes actually from Yosef Karo, and he says, in the Beis Yosef in Yordea in Lamates, um, the Beis Yosef Vada Masha Kosavti Shoy Makilin Chachme Castilia Bela Sirchas. If there were Kulas in Castile back in Spain in the Sirchas, Haim Neishanochim Barzosam Brobas Manu Hayimachmi Ralatsom Leochlin Shchitas Yisrael. It's because of economics, okay? And he says like this: How come in Spain, not today? Sfarim are actually more strict. But way long ago in Spain, he said the Metzius was that the Catholics in Spain for centuries held the Jews to be such junk that they would not want to eat something that was an animal that was killed by a Jew. It'd be like pogum to them from their point of view. So that means if I'm a shokate and I shaked an animal and there's a whole Shiloh whether it was good or not, it's not like in Poland or Germany where, you know, if it's no good, give it to sell to the guy, hell with it. Because in Germany and Poland, they had no problem. You know? They eat roadkill for crying out loud, you know? I think I told you when I came to my house the other day on Thanksgiving, my next door neighbor has a, has, a, has a driveway. It was a big dead deer there, like Bambi, with the antlers and everything. And I didn't know what to do with it. And I sent it around to some friends. And finally... Somebody had a hillbilly friend come from Westminster, and he took, I picked it up and took it home. He got rid of it. And for all, I mean, I don't think he ate it because the animal must have died from something, you know. But maybe he mounted it. I don't know. But, you know, what What do I know? Maybe they eat it. There's all kind of people out there, you know. It's all kind of people. And all can, and people he wrote killed me for crying out loud. So it depends in what kind of society the Shoptim found themselves, the Jewish kosher established find themselves. I want to repeat, this is not me talking, it's the of Karo although historians know this. And he says that if you're living in a place like Ashkenaz, where if it's a trafe or Suffolk trafe, heck with it, just get another animal. This one you can sell the meat to the Goyim. Um, fine, so that you can, quote-unquote, you can afford to be Machmer. 
But if you live in a country where the Gaish attitude is, ew, I wouldn't touch anything that was killed by a Jew. Because it's like Pogum, it's Tomei. You know, the, all these ideas that he had of contempt for the Jews beyond, beyond. Then if I'm Machmer on this, it's a Hebsa Marubo, you get it? If I'm out of There are all these famous stories. I remember reading in a Yish book many years ago. Uh, how's it go? That there was a small town in Eastern Europe, and uh, it was before Pesach or something, if I remember correctly, and they shechted a cow, and that is what everybody in that family, in that town is going to eat on Pesach. You, you get it? It's not like in America, where you and I are antiseptically divorced from the killing process. We just see the meat coming in nice packages in the supermarket. So we've got, you know, plausible deniability. It wasn't like that. You know, it used to be, and in many places is, if you're coming over here, I'm going to have to shift that animal to feed you. When, I think I must have mentioned, when I did one of my trips to uh, Italy, which I guess was 10, 15 years ago, and I was talking to the, the travel agent, and one of the questions he says is, so where you go? One of the places we went to was Livorno. Livorno, which has a Jewish community, very famous one. I mean, not nowadays, but it was in history. So I went there, and he says the local community will uh, host you. Do you want milkers or fleshics? You get it? Do you want milkers or fleshics? And I said, you know, like, what's the difference exactly? He said, if it's a fleshics, you got to tell us now because we have to shech that animal, and then butcher it and slaughter it and salt the meat and everything for your group. I have to tell them beforehand. Now, in the end, I said, who needs all that problem? So he had milk. It's, you know, fish. Get it? There's a story with that also, but there's Livorno fish. Um, so this is how life was lived. So the story was that there's a small village, and they shecked an animal, and it was some kind of Shiloh with the, I forget what it was, in the inside. And uh, and some Achorinov said it was okay, but the Ramah said it's trafe. It's no good. On the other hand, it's in Hefzim Ruba Godom it was like Arab Pesach, and nobody's got any food. And so the rabbi said, the story was, said to the Shochtim, listen, we'll get together. Like the Gemara says, we'll all take a piece of the beam, and uh, we'll, we'll paskin as a group that this is kosher, the animal's kosher, because we'll, we'll go like the other guy, now they throw them all. And the Shochtim in the story said, Oi, how can you do that? Aren't you afraid to argue with Ramah? No, we won't have any part of that. So the rabbi then said, I guess, okay, if you're forcing me to take all the responsibility upon myself, I'll do it. If I, I'm not comfortable, I'll do it, because I don't want the Jews in my village to have no food to eat on Pesach. And therefore, I'm moderate. And I said, it's kosher. They said, aren't you afraid of the Ramah? And the story was, the rabbi said, listen, after 120 years, I'm going to get to the pearly gates, and the Ramah will be there. Well, wait a minute. It depends what I do. If I say that the food is treif, I'm going to have all the hungry Balabatim waiting for me angrily at the pearly gates. You messed over our Pesach. On the other hand, if I say the animal's kosher, then I'll have the angry Ramah. The Ramah is a Tamachachach like I am. You know, well, he, he'll understand the situation. We'll come to an agreement. He's not going to punch me out. On the other hand, if I deal with the Balabatim like you guys, they're going to come with me and say, you're deprived of, of Pesach, so they'll kill me or something like that. So, it's a joke, but it, it reflects the fact they used to have this very organic kind of situation. So I'll read again. The, the Beis Yosef says, The reason back in Spain, in Castile, they were Mekel, because usually the Christians over there, so they wouldn't eat anything that was shechted by a Jew. So if you have a trade for animal, you lose a lot of money. So it would be a big hefzid, um, hefzid maruba for, for uh, Jewish money. But in Ashkenaz, where the guy have no problem eating an animal that was killed by a Jew, so that's you know, that's what the Minigadolim is, except Salonika, Shenogin Kosum Kosum Askilim, Shel Castilia. In Salonika, there's, there's Makel, they don't, uh, Paskin like the Chumras of the Ashkenazim. They should gum shum roba nachum ain't a mochum shkitis Israel. Because Salonika has a large population, excuse me, of Greek Christians, and they were extremely anti Semitic, they still are, I'm sorry to say. 
and they really hated the Jews tremendously, and therefore they would never touch a piece, of, from a Christian point of view, they would never touch a piece of food, a piece of meat, where a Jew was responsible for killing the animal. It's different ways of looking at it. I can tell you throughout the history of the Catholic Church, there always was a resentment of, this is going to sound funny, always a resentment, what did they do, Jews? You know, they didn't, they didn't do trade bring very little, Nikor. They didn't do much of that. You could, but it usually didn't. It was easier just to shake the animal and eat the front half. So what do you do with the rear half? They would sell that to the Goyim. So there are halachic reasons for what I just said. You know, the reluctance to traber and so forth. But there are many times you see in the church documents, they say, the Jews are selling us the tuchas of the animal because that's what they think about us. You understand? And once in a while it caused a riot. So life is strange. That's all I can tell you. Here comes our hero, Rabbi Yaakowal, and he's trying to bring some order into the situation. Um, this particular edition, well, let, let me say this. So if you look at the publication history of it, and in order to do that, I pulled out my rusty, trusty page turner, David W. Amram. Uh, what's his book called? From 1906. The Makers of Hebrew Books in Italy. David W. Amram was a lawyer in Philadelphia who was the Talmud Mubak of Marcus Jastrow. That's what he was. Jastrow was a reform rabbi in in Philly, and this guy was a, a, a student of his. I mean that in, the, in, in a good way, although he wasn't from. And he gives you all the books that were published in the Renaissance uh, presses all throughout the 1500s in Italy, if that's something that turns you on, which it turns me on. And you'll see that when it comes to the Bromberg Press, and that's the famous guy who published the first complete Shas, you've heard of that, and the Gadolas, and things like this. He takes through all the books that were published you know, down the years, and they're very interesting, you know, it's not necessarily, what, it's, it's a little bit chaplop. I mean, here's 1547, he published the Shari Dura, the Ra'al Bagwan, the Tanakh, the Smag, and the Halachas Kitanas, I mean, there's there's no rhyme or reason to that. So when you get to 1549, he has the of Mariwal, and the Shechitas of Bedikas, our book. So it's, um, so it was first published in Italy. Why would it be published in Italy? And then it was republished, because that's what they're selling in the Gnazim catalog, from 1556 in Mantua. Uh, why would it? I'll tell you, Mantua, you probably don't know this, is a big town or was an important Jewish community, let's put it that way, in northern Italy. Northern Italy, baby, is Ashkenazic Jews. The Italian Jews are a minority among Italian Jewry. You get what I'm saying? The Jews whose roots go all the way back to Rome and have never left the Italian peninsula as a minority. Rove of the Italian Jews, either as Fardim that came after 1492, uh, Told me in the old days. Now, Rova the Jews in Italy, I imagine, come from Libya or Iran. Uh, or, Rova the Jews in Italy also, with very large numbers, was in northern Italy from Ashkenaz. They left Ashkenaz because of persecutions, and they came to the towns of northern Italy, including Mantua. And so here you have Italian Jews, always small communities, but you got to eat, okay? Italy is indeed controversial because whatever the Shulchan Aruch says, um, in Italy, women shechted occasionally. We have, there's a famous uh, historian Machlokas between Cecil Roth on the one hand and uh, Robert Bonfield, Ruben Bonfield on the other. Cecil Roth, who was a bucky in Italian Jewry, he lived there and he, he liked Italian Jewry. I mean that in a good way, not a bad way. And he was a nice guy, no Tom Chambe was a nice guy, a professor in English universities, and a, a sort of a sort of a Shabbos, sort of. A good guy, and he says the, he has, he wrote these books because it was hard for him to get a job teaching university because he was a, a proud Jew and you had to be an unproud Jew to get a job at university. So um, he wrote a lot of books for the JPS. That's how he made a living. That's why he turned out a lot of books. But he actually was a big historian. So he wrote a lot of books on Italian Jewry and he knows it. He knows that subject. And he has uh, documents there of Kabbalists for women to Shecht. And he said, look how liberal... Within a Orthodox framework, Italian Jewry was that their women could shecht. It shows you that the Italian Jews were integrated, they were modern Orthodox, they are Avi Weiss. That's really what he says. And he means it in a good way, because that's who he was. And I don't mean to, to knock him, I mean to say he was looking for a historical precedent for what you and I would call a liberal Orthodoxy. Okay? And here you have in Italy, long before the 20th century, and, and, and it's great. Um, years later... When I was in college, um, another historian, whose name is Reuben Bunfield, who's Italian Jew, and now in the Hebrew University, maybe he's retired, I don't know, 
He wrote fundamental books on Italian Jewry. I mean, he knows. He was a Talmud Chacham too. He had Samicha from somewhere. But he was a big professor in Italian Jewry. I'll say it again. He is Italian. And he said, no, you dummy. The reason that they had to give women Kabbalah and the Shkita is because of Bidiyevin. The husbands uh, in the summer is very hot. And so the Jews, like everybody else, whoever could, would run to the mountains to try to withstand the summer. So the men, it's, it's like... Uh, New York, you know what I mean? The guys have to stay in Manhattan, but the women are all out in the bungalow colony. So if they're all, that's what happened in Italy, he says. And they're tiny little families. And, you know, like this family and two families go up with their little children, the two women, um, in this and this mountainous area. So what do you eat? <coughs> what do you eat? What do you eat in terms of flesh, in terms of chicken and shabbos, things like that? What do you eat? And there was nobody except a woman. And so reluctantly, as a Bedievin, they said... That the women can shecht. Is it for her family in that situation? See, he says, it doesn't show you how liberal the Italian Jews were. It shows you how tough Parnosa was, that the, uh, you know, and life was difficult, that they felt themselves, um, what's the right word, pressured reluctantly to do something which is, is, you know, is very controversial. And, you know, don't bring a raya from that. So here we have, as I said before, in 1550, 1556, where is it? I'm looking, 1556, like a second or I think a third printing of it, in Mantua, that's what they're selling in this auction. And I would throw in something else as well, and that is, this is when started the burning of the Hebrew books. You understand, 1550s. And so, um, Ashkenazic Jews, let me put it this way, if I'm going as a, if what I just said was true, I could be a person who was a, a little bit learned. Maybe I went to Yeshiva for a while in Padua, one of those type places, you know, Marik or something like that. And now I'm a businessman and I'm on the road. And I'm only going to, you know, the only thing I can eat is chicken if I shaft it myself. There's nobody else there. Because in, in Italy, there are whole areas where no Jews. And my business may take me over there. Therefore, I want, there's a market for somebody can put out, I'm going to use a term, an art scroll, Hilkashkita book. That's how they looked at the Hilkashkita of Mariwal. Not with a hundred commentaries like you see over here so you get dizzy just looking at the page that's wonderful i mean he really did a work of archaeological reconstruction i mean that in a good way that he brought every safer and you see dozens and dozens of mafarshim down the centuries in germany and poland and lithuania he got from Instagram inspector and in hungary and uh, you name it so this is a book that was popular the some people had problems with this and they said wait a minute you're basing all, I mean, Mariwal, you can certainly go by, but what about, he's not the final word. What do I mean he's not the final word? In halacha, nobody's the final word. 50 years later, 100 years later, he's just a name from the past. I'll give you an example. If I say to Moshe Feinstein, my generation, that's like, oh, Moshe Feinstein, if he said it, that's it. I'm sure my children, certainly my grandchildren, Moshe Feinstein, I heard him, he was a rabbi in New York. You know, say no. It doesn't have the same pizzazz because it's not going to happen. If I live in the time of Nodi Behuda, I say, "Oh my goodness, Nodi Behuda! Wow!" If he says something, that's it. But a hundred years later, Nodi Behuda is one day. You know, he's a great man. There are a lot of other great men out there. He's one guy, and we don't necessarily possibly can we do. We don't. So that's what happened over here, the uh, Tavua Shore, uh, in Poland. He said, "How come everybody's going by that by, by this book, which which is out of date?" Now, if you're a real um, old line Ashkenaz guy, okay, then you cite this. We go like Mariwa. That's it. We we follow this book, okay. I mean, that's it. You know, see, that's it. That's how we go. And believe it or not, Jonas and Apeshitz says in the crazy placey, Kimu v'kibul lasses kafi shechitas Mariwa. That this is what the Olam does. This is the uh, the old line, okay. So I mean that's. That's actually very, very interesting. Um, now, uh, like I said before, it wouldn't come out with the Kudus in the 1600s if it didn't have this kind of big authority. Um, and who was it? The Shore complained about this, and he wrote his book. Let me find it. Exactly to, 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 to fight against it. And he said, I want... You know, what about the, the Gedolim for the last 200 years since the Mariwal? Are they garnished? You know, we, we, you, you got to find out what they hold also. Maybe they're more Machmir than the Mariwal in this area. Maybe they're more Makel in that area. You can't just blow them away. 
And therefore, a shochet nowadays, the tua shortainit, has to be, so as we would say today, up to date. So I'm holding in my hands a simla chadasha, you know, um, which of course, again, from Alexander Sendashur, I did him once. I'll hold a chidro chavis. Um, my kids, is really funny. I don't understand it. Me, myself, and I never want to be a shochet. I shocked it a little bit, just as he was like, I never shook it. And my father told me when he got out of the concentration camp and came to America, he was thinking of being a shokhet. He learned shrita. He got the stones. He got the knives, all the rest of it. But the, this is what he told me. He said, the first thing they gave him the shech was a, a gedi. And it went, meh. He said, forget it. It's like, it's like Hitler, you know. He couldn't, he couldn't do it. So he gave that up. Um, but, you know, a gezunt American, bachlein uh, al-sir, basar, isn't like that. So my kids, two of my boys, are in a shechita kabur here in Baltimore. It's a Chemi Goldstein, or it's a Levy. I don't know who's who's running it exactly. And I was really surprised, you know, two American kids, and they say, we need a base dome, and a simple kadosh, all the rest of it. So I gave him my book, but I, I saw in the bookstore, you know, a couple weeks ago, they had one left over with the Nakudas and a simple kadosh. He is trying to supplant the Mariwal. And to some degree... He kind of succeeded. So I'm taking you into an area most people don't know. The the area of Shita books. Um, so the Simba Chadosha certainly took off, no question about it. And he's superlative also. And nowadays, I think they all use based of it, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so you see how it goes? Which is more Litvish. You know, see how it goes? Every time, every couple generations, there's a need for a Kiddush, a Scotches, a new angle on it, whatever you want to call it. But our guy here, this safer, which is being sold, as I say again, in the Genosa, how much did they want for it? Oh, 50 to 70 grand. Okay. Uh, was un- This was a beloved safer once upon a time. And in my opinion, the reason they published it on uh, on parchment is Laman Yamdu Yam and Rabin. That means that these books are going to be taken by travelers on the road and, uh, you know, look up when they have shalos or, or, or instructions how to shecht. And if it's on paper, it'll tear. You get it? If it's on parchment, it'll withstand the rigors of the road. And it's Italy, and it's the 1550s, and travel is what it is. And uh, it's just fascinating to me. I wonder, I don't know, I didn't look into it closely enough, if this is one of those books that was bankrolled by uh, Gracia Mendes, because around the time that she was in Italy. But she was Sephardi, so I don't think she would do uh, the Ashkenaz book. I don't know, know, I, I just don't know. Um, but the f- very fact that you see on the page here presented in the uh, in the catalog, and again, you can look it up online. You know, go to Genosim. You look around, you'll find it. They actually show you little pictures of the pagams in the uh, in the shechita knife. So I guess they really figured they're dealing with with ingenues. Amaratsim were learning hilchashchita from square from scratch, which is fine. That's what you want. If a guy does not a shecht, at least give him a reliable text. And when you got Rabbi Wild who was an outstanding author. In other words, what I mean to say is like this. He's very clear. This is his kayach. You look at the Shalos and Chus, you know, he's very clear, uh, doesn't waste words. He gets to the point. He has hagos of his own on the side. Not many, though. So it's not a big book that gets out of hand. Now, the book I'm holding in my hand that I picked up today from Shabbos is a Jagundo. It's hundreds and hundreds of pages, but it's a deluxe model, as they say, made by a labor of love. If you're interested in... Uh, Therefore, a historical, what's the right word? Um, treasured piece. If you get this Helcha uh, Shrita from the Mariwal, it's not just a Shrita book, you know, like a dumb thing. It's actually one of the most popular and used books in Jewish history, which I don't think most people give attention to because nowadays we live a life, most of us, if you're not a professional shokhet, in which you're completely detached and you want to be detached from the whole Shita process. But that was not the way our ancestors lived. You understand? It's not the way it was. And a lack of clarkite in Holy Shita is a bummer gadol because you guys going to be feeding you treif. You understand? Now, even with all the modern stuff and the star K and the boys, all the rest of it, and the professionalization of Shita, it ain't a perfect world. I know a lot that I'm keeping my mouth shut about. But, and you probably do also. But it's, you know, but they're doing the best they can. You understand? And this would be Rabbi Diskin in Baltimore when I was young, principal of Yako. And I remember as a kid, they said, oh, he doesn't need by anybody, even by his kids. Only in his house. And I used to think, that's really dumb. 
I don't think that anymore. <laughs> now, I'm not a Sadiq. They only eat in the house. But I hear the Vart. You understand? And this is what our hero is fighting against. This is a side of Rabbi Yaakov that has nothing to do with the Shalos and Shubas. Um, but I can guarantee you one thing. His published response were published two or three times. His Shlita book published 150 times. So you see it's two different crowds. In one case, he's addressing the Gedoli Israel because who can understand Shalos and Shubas except other big Rabbanim, right? They can't understand it. Um, on the other hand, a, a book on Shkitiv is written well, is for everybody. Incidentally, this big fancy volume has Yiddish translations all the way in the back. It's really a very comprehensive work. I must say, whoever did it must be related to him or something like that. They went through all this trouble. And you see, uh, I'm talking about the old uh, Yiddish Deutsch, you know what I mean? Notice that the, the Yiddish that was spoken by the Jews in Germany, which is a little bit different than the Jews spoken in Eastern Europe, but you can, you, you can figure it out. You know what I'm saying? You can figure it it's, it's It's something along the lines, not exactly, it's something along the lines of, of Mendelssohn's uh, you know, thing. And, and not really, but you know, more Germanic type words. Uh, but you know, the, the average reader today doesn't need this. If you're interested in what I'm talking about, and if you're interested in a fascinating uh, piece of Jewish history, if you want the whole history of it, you'll get this book. If you want the book itself, you'll get it at the Gnosim. Um But it's not just the Shrita book. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a historical treasure because the, the Jewish people took it to its bosom. And it survived many persecutions. And that is how our ancestors ate. In the good days. In the Halavai. If the local Shochet memorized this book, which is not so wide, and he shechted according to that, you could do a lot worse then eating a queen the answer or Yaka Wow. Anyway, I just wanted to throw that in there. And again, if you're interested, this is going to be in the Gnosium, um this original edition back in the fifteen fifty six from Italy is going to be in the Gnosium, um auction, which is going to take place on December eleventh. Is that right? Yeah. December I'm looking at the at the catalog. December eleventh of twenty twenty two. Which is coming up at, you know in a week or so. Uh so if this is something that you're interested in it's, it's you know you you've got an early edition of a book that was a uh, a favorite once upon a time of your ancestors and mine. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.